You may be seated. It's not. There we go. All right, we have something. All right. Now that we're completely discombobulated, let's see if we can uncombobulate. All right, if you look at the liturgical calendar, you will notice that today is marked as Palm Sunday, which is a day when we remember Christ's triumphal entrance into the city of Jerusalem. This is going to be interesting to figure out where to put this. Okay. Uh, So anyways, when he entered the city of Jerusalem, the crowds chanted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was only a few verses later, though, that they shouted, crucify him, crucify him, which is a pretty radical shift, is it not? That's quite the radical shift. So why the radical shift? Well, as we'll see this morning, the radical shift in their behavior was due to the lack of a radical shift that had occurred within their hearts. That's the reason for it. For without that radical shift, the gospel message of Jesus, hear me when I say this, it always leads to a hostile response. Eventually, it will lead to a hostile response. Now, some of you might be wondering why we aren't in the book of Matthew, because today's text was supposed to be Matthew 13, 1 through 23, which is about the parable of the sower. Well, we've moved that one out, uh, but as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, in that parable, the first three soils represent a wrong response to Jesus, while the fourth soil represents the right response to him. So before we dig into that parable, I want us to take a little pit stop here at John chapter 12, where we're going to look at Jesus' triumphal entrance into Jerusalem in order to help us see what that right soil response looks like. So with that said, if you would, we're going to read uh, our scripture passage for this morning, which comes from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. So if you have your Bibles, please open there, and we'll read this. So if you would, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. In John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, the holy scriptures read, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done for him, to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we just ask that you would help quiet our minds, that you would help us focus our attention upon your holy written word. Remove distractions, remove tiredness, uh, remove idols from our hearts so that we might gaze upon Christ with pure affections and desire for him. Father, we just thank you for your love for us that is manifested in your great and precious gift, Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Father, that we would not squander that gift, that we would appreciate that gift and live joyously and victoriously in response to that gift. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. You may be seated. If you know anything at all about fantasy fiction, the stories almost universally revolve around the people's need for a powerful king who unites the people, conquers their cruel and evil enemies, and leads them to living happily ever after. That's kind of the the thrust of all nonfiction fantasy. In the Lord of the Rings, who'd they look to? Aragorn. In the Chronicles of Narnia, who'd they look to? Aslan. In King Arthur, they look to who? King Arthur. Pretty straightforward on that one. And they do this because the kings in fantasy fiction often do make all of the people's dreams come true and lead them to living happily ever after. However, in nonfiction, though, we find which, if you don't know what nonfiction is, that's just not make-believe. Think of it that way. Non-make-believe, okay? It couldn't be further from the truth. Human kings and rulers aren't just bad. They're abysmally bad. They're terrible. For example, think, uh, you know, the people of Germany. Who did they look to around 1940? They looked to Adolf Hitler, a guy who promised that he would restore Germany to prominence and success. And yet, what did he do? Killed millions. Led to the opposite of that. The people of Italy trusted in a man named Mussolini to put everything right, to fix all of their problems. Yet what did he do? The opposite. Killed millions. He was a tyrannical leader. The people of Russia, Russia, they trusted in Stalin. And yet what did he do? The same exact thing. He killed millions. The history of human kings is not just bad. It's abysmally bad. It's awful. From the tyranny of European monarchies to way back with Israel's kings, it is a dark history with example after example of kings who use their power not for good, but for great evil and wickedness. And yet, we still can't help ourselves, can we? Because we still keep looking for a king to come along and solve all of our problems. We are inevitably looking for a king to come along and save us. Sure, we don't really look to literal kings anymore these days. We're kind of moving beyond that. Yes, England still has theirs, but they're kind of more of a symbol than they are a position of power. However, every single person here in this room is looking to someone or something to sit upon the throne of your heart who you can rule or who can rule and reign over your life. You are. You absolutely are. We are all looking for someone or something to sit upon the throne of our heart. And here's the thing about that. Every single one of us is serving someone or something. And here's the other crazy part is we think that that someone or something is actually serving us. That's what we've deluded ourselves into thinking. We think, hey, you know what? This king, this person, this thing, whatever, that's actually going to do me good. But like with Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, it doesn't. Not even close. We end up serving it. Some of you have made your career your king. You think it serves you, it benefits your life, gives you ability maybe to, maybe it gives you abilities to give to the church in great amounts. Maybe it gives you abilities to take care of your family as you think God wants you to. However, you're wrong. It dominates your life. It controls who you are. For this king is really what you're living after for. 
And you're living for it. Why? Because it is your king. Some of you have made your family your king. Some of you have made the opinions of others your king. Some of you have made your religion your king. And make no mistake, your religious obedience to God isn't any better of a king than the rest of these things. It's still terrible. It's still awful. These are all evil tyrants who will use their power to leave a burden upon your soul and leave you weary and heavy laden. They will not bring you rest, nor will they lead you to living happily ever after. And why? They're not powerful enough. Not at all. They simply aren't powerful enough. However, as our text shows us this morning, there is one who is powerful enough to handle the crown, to handle the scepter, to sit upon the throne of our life and rule and reign because this one can do so with both great power, but also with great humility and wisdom. And so it is to this king alone in whom we should place our allegiance by rightly responding to this king in three ways. And here they are. To respond rightly to the king... We must live in his power, we must live in his humility, and third, we must live in his wisdom. Look at verse 12 again with me. We're going to read verse 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to, feast, come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Why is it that all these other kings aren't powerful enough when this one is? Why is this king powerful enough? Well, because namely, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the sovereign God of the universe who created it with the power of his voice, who also, may I remind you, upholds all of the molecules within this universe, even the ones in our bodies today. He holds them together by the power of his might. That's a powerful king. See, this universe doesn't just hold itself together. It doesn't go on the the patterns, you know, rotations and all that stuff all on its own. No, no, no. There is a sovereign, all-powerful king behind it that holds this all together. And Jesus is that sovereign king. He is the creator. And so he is the most powerful king out of all of the kings. And so logically, it is to this king, our creator, our God, that we owe our allegiance. And the thing about that is his power is the only power that can rule and reign over our life in a way that doesn't harm us. Only this king can bring the peace that passes all understanding, for he is the prince of peace. Only this king can bring rest for our heavily burdened and weary souls. And if we don't recognize this, if you don't recognize this, it's absolutely going to cost you. It's going to harm you. And eventually it will destroy you. Psalm 146 is a passage we looked at, I think, like six months ago maybe now. I can't remember when exactly. But the point of that passage talks very directly. It says, do not put your trust in princes. Don't do it. Don't put your trust in the Son of Man. Why not? Because they're going to fail us. Each and every time, they're going to fail us. See, here's how this works. You put your trust in princes. If you do this, you're going to either become blind and naive to that prince's failures, or when you find out that he has failures, he or she, you're going to find out and you're going to be miserable. You're going to be crushed. You're either going to be blinded to their failures or you're going to be crushed by their failures when you inevitably see them. And here's the thing, there's all sorts of princes that we can look to in our lives to make us happy. We just talked about this a little bit a minute ago. For example, some people can look to their spouse to be the prince of their life. Some look to their children as their prince. Some look to that one politician or political party as their prince, and good luck with that one. (laughs) Well, some look even to their church as their prince, and some, heaven forbid, even their pastor And if that's you, whatever it is, doesn't matter what the prince is you're looking to in your life, make no mistake, that prince is going to come back and abuse you. It's going to let you down. It's going to leave you miserable and feeling weary and heavy laden. That prince will not bring rest for your soul. Every single prince we look to in this life will leave us heartbroken and miserable. And why? Because every single prince that we look to is not powerful enough 
to bring us peace, hope, and joy. None of them are powerful enough to deal with the problem in our heart. And what's the problem in our heart? Sin. That's a pretty big problem. That's the biggest problem of all the problems we have. It's our sin problem. And so what then is the antidote? What must we do? As verse 13 says, we must cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And so what does that mean then? Do we just give intellectual lip service to that expression? Yeah, sure, sounds good. I'll sign up for that. No. It actually is a lot more than that. It means to accept Jesus as the King and the Lord of your life. What does that look like? Well, it's a whole lot more than just making him the king of your life on Sunday mornings, here and there, when you feel like it. It's way more than that. Not just the Lord of your quiet time, even. Not just the Lord of your needs, whom you go to when life gets rough, when that sickness shows up, when that diagnosis comes in, or when that car crash happens. We're talking about way more than the Lord of our needs. Instead, what are we talking about? We're talking about bowing our knee before him, In saying to King Jesus, I surrender all. All to you I surrender. All to you I freely give. And here's the thing about that all. This is in the Greek. You'd have to to trust me on this. All means all. It means everything. It's not talking most things. It's not talking most of the time. It's talking from A to Z, all. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. So I'm talking about all of your time. I'm talking about all of your schedule. It belongs to him now. All of your money belongs to him now. You don't just give your percentage and say, this is for you, God, and the rest is for mine. Check the box, I'm good. No, you look at all of your money and you say, Lord, how should I use this? For you are the king. This also means that your children are not your children. They belong to him. And it is your responsibility as the delegate of the king to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Your spouse is not yours. You give your spouse to the king, which means you don't sit there and try to fix them in all the ways that you think they need fixing. Yes, you try to help them. Yes, you rebuke and love. All those things are certainly true, but you hand them over to the king and say, Lord, this is yours, not mine. Everything the king demands, he demands it all. So here's a question. Does that sound scary? (laughs) You better believe it does. If you don't think it is, you don't even know what we're talking about still. That absolutely better sounds scary. Of course it does. But do you know what? When you do this, do you know what happens? You find that you are not giving your everything to a tyrannical king who selfishly demands all of our stuff, everything there is, for his own good pleasure. You find a gracious and loving, humble king who demands them in order to bring us true joy and pleasure. It's quite remarkable. It's unlike any other king we've ever seen, is it not? It's totally different. You find a humble king who doesn't hurt and abuse his people. That's rare. You find one who loves them immensely. You find the king that your heart has been longing for all along, even though you've been searching for that longing in all of the wrong places. That's what you find. The search is over. And not only that, but you find something else that's remarkable, and this is actually very remarkable. You find his power at work in your life within yourself. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You've had this, and it is truly remarkable, is it not? How? You find yourself being more patient with people than you ever dared to imagine. You're like, where did that come from? That's not me. Anybody experienced that one before? Maybe not at first. Okay, I'm not saying all this happens overnight. Okay, it does happen over time. But you find yourself being kind to those who persecute you, caring for them, loving them. Yes, hating their sin, but loving the sinner. You find your love for the things of this world growing strangely dim as we're about to sing in the light of his glory and grace. Anyone here found that before? things that you loved immensely, the princes in life that you thought were so great, you came to realize compared to King Jesus, those are shadows at best, not even close. And not only do you find all that, but you find his power at work and alive within you in ways that just shock you, that just surprise you. 
You find all sorts of things happening in your life that you could have never done on your own. Not in a million years or a million self-help books, a million motivational speeches, or a million psychotherapy lessons. None of them could have even scratched the surface and compared to what Christ's power is doing in your life. And when this happens, here's the other thing that you'll notice. You don't respond with pride, with arrogance, or with self-satisfaction even. You don't. Because, you see what I mean? Like, before what we did, when we made progress in our life, we were like, ha, I am pretty good, you know? Like, but now we don't do that. Why? Because we know the power that's at work within us isn't our own. It's his power, which comes to us completely, freely, and fully by grace. And so we don't respond with pride, we don't respond with arrogance, we don't respond with self-satisfaction. Instead, we respond with humility. And then we turn and praise the King of Kings and Lord of Lords for that power at work within our lives. Maybe some of you here today are refusing to give yourself over to this power because you aren't convinced that he's going to take care of you. You're convinced that he's going to actually leave you miserable. If you give up the princes in your life that you're looking to for happiness, for satisfaction, you're like, well, what am I going to do? I'm not going to be happy. If I give that hobby up, if I give that career up, if I give whatever, how am I going to be happy? What am I going to do with my time? Anybody ever thought that way? Of course we have. However, he will not be like the other tyrannical kings who uses and abuses their people. He doesn't. It's not the case with this king, for this king is indeed immensely powerful, but he is immensely humble as well, which leads us to our second point. To respond rightly to this king, we must live in his power and secondly, in his humility. Look at verses 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. How? Sitting on a donkey's colt. What? Why a donkey's colt? What's, what's all that about? Why is he riding a donkey? Don't they usually ride big, powerful war horses? Well, yes, they do. So this is telling us something significant. It wasn't like Jesus went to the stable and was like, uh, there's no horses today. I guess we'll take the donkey. No, there's a reason for this. The reason was is because Jesus was showing that his power was made manifest in weakness. You see how backwards and upside down that is, according to human thinking? This is another reason, by the way, just a total side note. The Bible is not made up by humans. Nobody would have come up with this kind of stuff. Only a divine mind. See, in ancient times, when a mighty and victorious king would ride into a city to the public fanfare of the people, there'd be you know ribbons and streaming and kids running up and down. It's a big, exciting thing. They did so on a powerful war horse. Why? Because it symbolized that king's great power. It showed, it's like riding your tank into the town. All right, That's what it was like back then. It symbolized their mighty power. It's kind of like those guys who have those big, beefy motorcycles with the no, you know, they take the spoiler cap off and they rev it and it wakes everybody from the dead within five miles. You know what I mean? It's kind of that sort of thing. And they do that, at least some of those guys are, because they're trying to show what? How manly and tough they are. Like, I'm tough. That's what it is. I mean... Maybe you do that. Maybe that's not your reason. But without a doubt, that has to be the reason for at least some of them. They're flexing to show their toughness. And so with that in mind, here comes Jesus doing the exact opposite as he enters Jerusalem, the city of kings. He doesn't enter on that powerful, huge white war horse. He enters on a small donkey, something that was more suitable for children, not a mighty and conquering king. It'd be like showing up at Sturgis, that motorcycle rally, riding on a moped or one of those little kids' trike things. Okay? It's not how you do that. So with this picture in mind, here is King Jesus, the absolute sovereign Lord of the universe, showing up on a lowly and humble donkey. And why? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but we're just going to look at a few of them. For one, I mean, this was to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Let's look at Zechariah 9.9. Here's what it says. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it for us. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Now, we could stop here and we could talk a whole lot about all these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, but that'll have to be for another day. So we'll just say this. One of the reasons Jesus rode in on a donkey was to show he was the messianic king that Zechariah was talking about. This was a prophecy of what he would do, and that's why he was doing it. See, before Christ came, the religious leaders, the people who studied the law, they looked at this verse, and it really took them for a world. They're scratching their head. They're like, what? Why? We have all these verses that talk about how the messianic king was going to come and do what? He's going to conquer. He's going to rule and reign. He was going to put all of the nations at his footstool. And then they read this, and they're like, what? How do you do that on a donkey? It made no sense to them. And the reason it made no sense is they didn't understand the difference between the first coming as a humble and lowly servant and the second coming, which is happening very soon at a town near you, which is Christ returning on the powerful white war horse to conquer, rule, and reign. Christ showed up on a donkey to prove he was the messianic king that Zechariah spoke of, but also to teach us something about his nature. He wanted to teach us that, yes, he was powerful, but he was so much more than that. Even people of great tyrannical, how am I going to say this? Even people in human history can have great power, but it's not so impressive, is it? You know, Hitler, Mussolini, not so impressive at all. Very unimpressive what they did with that power. But Christ was so much more than that, for he was both power and weakness, strength and humility, which is why he rode in on the donkey to show us this. He wanted to show us that he was the perfect blend between power and servility. He wanted to show us that he was the perfect blend of both justice and grace, sovereignty and submission, sufficiency in himself, yet total trust and dependency upon his Father whom was in heaven. And this actually goes to show us the true depths of his power and greatness. I mean, think about this. Ultimate, you heard of this expression, ultimate power corrupts what? Absolute power corrupts what? There we go. Absolutely. Sorry, I messed that one up. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. All right? We've heard that before. And why is that an expression? Because it's true. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And why? Because no prince among us can wield even puny human power in a way where it doesn't corrupt them and and manifest evil in a way it doesn't destroy them. I mean, think about this. Who is the best king in all of human history besides Jesus? Probably King David, a man after God's own heart. And what did he do? He became an adulterating murderer. That's the best of the best. That's all we got. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. But yet, in Christ Jesus, the son of David, the true king, he is able to wield a power that is so much greater than mere puny human power. He's wielding divine power, and he does so in a way that doesn't corrupt him, that doesn't lead him to becoming a tyrannical king. Do you, do you realize how amazing that is? I hadn't thought of that before until looking at this text. And I've looked at texts like this before. This isn't my first Palm Sunday sermon. This is amazing. Christ could wield absolute power, the God-man, in human flesh, and it didn't corrupt him. Every other human, it corrupts. But not Jesus. He was absolute power in flesh. And yet, he was humble. He was meek. We've seen this over and over throughout the book of Matthew. In Christ, we find someone, as one old song goes, many of you probably know this one, meekness and majesty. We find meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is is also God. Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. The righteous one, the only righteous one, washes the feet of sinners. Nobody can make this up. Christ, Almighty God, was not only born in human flesh, but he rode in, pronouncing his messianic title, his messianic identity, riding the donkey. He didn't come to conquer, rule, and reign. He came what? To suffer, serve, and to die for sinners, for me, for you. There's nothing like this in all of the history of kings that we've ever seen before. He is the perfect balance between power and humility, which is exactly the king that we need. 
And this is why we can sing as the chorus of that song goes on to say, Oh, what a mystery. Meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. Do you know why the crowds went from saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to only a week later saying and shouting, crucify him, crucify him? That's a pretty big difference. Do you know why they went from that to that? It's because they wanted the king's power without the king's humility. They wanted the king's power without the king's humility. They wanted the powerful king who rode in on the white horse, but they didn't want the king who rode in on the donkey. They'll say, I'll take that one, not that one. But Christ is both. He's already done the donkey riding, and eventually he's going to do the white horse riding. But they didn't want that. They didn't want the king on the donkey. They wanted the king on the horse. But here's the thing. You know what they didn't understand? They didn't understand that the wisdom of God was infinitely greater than their own. Infinitely greater than the wisdom of man. Because here's the thing. If God had operated according to their wisdom, you know what would have happened? They would have been crushed. They would have been destroyed. Just like every single person in this room would have been destroyed before the holy judge, before the holy king, who judges sinners. And that's everyone. All of us have sinned and broken God's laws. As sinners, we all are born rebels of the king who choose to continue on in our rebellion. And because of that, if Jesus would have come on the white horse, he would have crushed that rebellion with his absolute power. He has the ability to just speak it, as we see in Revelation 19, and crush his enemies. Boom, it's done. But instead, because Christ came in humility... He was powerfully able to save us. But the crowds didn't want that humility, did they? Nope. Why not? They didn't think they needed it. They thought they were good. They thought their righteousness was just fine. They were sons of Abraham. What are you talking about? We don't need our sins atoned for. We don't need you. But oh, did they ever. Later on in this chapter, Jesus turns to the crowds and he tells them not only that he must die, he tells them how he's going to die. And boy, did they not like that even a little bit. That greatly upset them. Like, what are you talking about? You're supposed to get Rome off our back. Where's the power? Where's the white horse? And in fact, this was so unacceptable to them that if you read later on in Matthew chapter 12, just a few verses down, it tells us that that the Father's voice booms out from heaven promising to glorify Jesus. And do you know what the crowd does? A whole lot of them say, oh my, that must have been thunder. Yeah, that was thunder. That was thunder, yeah. It's idiotic. They had seen Christ's power, and yet they still rejected him because they wanted God on their own terms. In fact, earlier in this chapter, it tells us how many of them were even there when they saw Jesus raise him from the dead. That's what started this whole thing. That crowd who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, they went after him. They're like, this is him. This is him. Let's go. Messianic king here. And yet in the end... When they found out the wisdom of God's plan, they thought it was foolish. And so they turned against Christ and joined with the religious leaders and shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. Instead of hearing what Jesus told them and believing in him, they rejected him because they thought their wisdom was better than God's. They thought that they knew what kind of prince they needed and they were absolutely dead wrong. For their wisdom was nothing but foolishness compared to the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians tells us that even the wisdom of of men is nothing. It pales in comparison even to the foolishness of God, as if there is any, but that's the contrast he's making there. It doesn't even come close. For the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of men, which leads us to our final point. To respond rightly to the king, we must live in his power We must live in his humility and finally in his wisdom. One week after Jesus' triumphal entrance into the city of Jerusalem, the city of kings, those crowds went from chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify him, crucify him. Why? We've already talked about that. They wanted Jesus' power in their life without the humility. They wanted it to fit with their wisdoms, not God's. And I'm guessing, I don't know this, but I'm guessing some of you here today might be along the same lines. You're thinking the same way too. 
You look at Christianity, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but you look at Christianity, and you want its power in your life. I mean, who doesn't? Who wouldn't want the miracles of Jesus in their life? Some of you have major health issues. Wouldn't that be nice? Of course it would. So some of you, maybe you're here, and you want the power of Christianity, of Christ in your life, to free you from your suffering. You want it to free you from that addiction that you've been fighting for so long. You want healing for that bad marriage. Maybe you want healing for that relationship with your children that's estranged. Whatever it is, the point is, you want the power without the humility and without the wisdom of God. You don't want the rest of what Jesus comes along with. Basically, the way you're thinking about this, as long as Christianity's power is serving for you, as long as it's working for you in the way that you want, sure, why not? I'll go to church on Sundays sometimes. I'll say a prayer. I'll say that I believe in Jesus. Why not? You'll stay on board so long as the gift giver keeps giving the gifts you want. But do you see the problem here? If that's your approach to Jesus, you're not giving him your all. You're not approaching him as king. You're approaching him as a genie of the cosmos who dispenses your desires according to your wishes. And in fact, if that's how you're approaching King Jesus, you're approaching him just like the crowds did. You don't want his humility and wisdom. You only want the power and you want it on your terms. Which means, as we'll see next week, uh, You're a lot like that seed that was thrown on the rocky ground. What happened with the seed on the rocky ground? Well, it was rocky underneath. There's a little bit of soil on top. And so the Christian faith seems to sprout up suddenly and quickly. The sun comes out and then it withers and dies. Why? Because you were never rooted and firmly planted in Christ. That's what it's talking about. And so you've never responded rightly to the king. And so to respond rightly to the king, what must we do? We must live in his power. What does that look like? It means recognizing that your power is puny and weak and impossible to please God with. So you need his power. It means you must recognize his humility and then live in his humility, which means you fully embrace his humble character. How? By not only seeing it as good, but emulating that humble character as your own through his power. And lastly, you must accept God's wisdom, which means rejecting all other wisdom. And that includes your own. You don't take man's wisdom above God's. You take God's. What do I mean by that? I mean a lot of things. First of all, it means accepting God's plan of salvation on his terms, not yours. And as 1 Corinthians tells us, what is God's plan of salvation according to the wisdom of men? They see it as foolishness. They see it as ridiculous. And that is how we all naturally approach the gospel. Apart from eyes of faith, we see it as ridiculous. And now here's the thing. Don't be so fast to think that you've approached God's plan of salvation, the wisdom of God. Don't think that you've done this rightly already so quickly. Stop and think about it is what I'm trying to say. Don't rush into the conclusion, oh, I've done that. Yep, I'm good. Because there's going to be many who on that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? And what is he going to say? Depart from me. I never knew you. So we need to reflect. We need to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We need to take this seriously. Because the reality is, there might be many here today who are like the seed in the rocky soil, which means you're like the crowd. To put it plainly, As Hebrews speaks of, though you've tasted the heavenly gift of salvation, you've gotten close to it, you've come around Christians, you've heard the preaching, you've been maybe emotionally excited by it, maybe you said a prayer even and seen some of those benefits of the power of Christ in your life, but you've only tasted it. You've never chewed it, you've never swallowed it, you've never had it digest and actually change your spiritual DNA. And this is because you've never fully embraced the wisdom of God. And if you haven't done that, make no mistake, your heart and soul, though today it says, I'll take some Jesus, it will eventually cry out, crucify him, crucify him, just as it inevitably did with the crowds. That's where your sin's going to take you. There are only two options here. It's 
Hosanna, Hosanna, or crucify him, crucify him. You don't get a middle ground approach to this thing. It's all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, or it's crucify him, crucify him. Those are your only two options here, church. So the question then is, is how do I know then if I've accepted God's infinitely wise plan of salvation? Well, let's get creative here. Well, not very. We're going to take our outline and recycle it in reverse form. How do we know if we've accepted God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ? Three ways. One is wisdom. We've dropped the wisdom of man in exchange for the wisdom of God, which means, simply put, you've given up on religion. You've stopped trying to please God through moral and religious obedience. You're done with all that. You're not trying to approach God on your terms, and that is the terms by which we all begin trying to please God. We all start there. So you start with that and you go on to God's terms. What are God's terms? We approach him how? By grace, through faith, in the shed blood of Jesus. Not our own works so that no one may boast. And this means you no longer get to boast in your righteousness. It's filthy rags before God. And that means you don't boast in your successes anymore. Your identity is not based upon how much of a good or bad girl or boy you are. It's not the Santa Claus approach. Making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. You're done with that. As Paul says, he counts all of it as loss. Why? So that he might know the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus. And so this means that we stop thinking that our relationship with God determines our worth. Let me put it this way. We stop thinking that our good works determine our relationship with God. Instead, we don't look to our worth We look to Christ's worth. That is a totally, radically different approach. And once you stop looking at yourself, do you know what else you do? You stop boasting in your failures. That's a weird way to say that, boasting in your failures. Why are we saying it like that? Well, we're saying it like that because that's what we're not doing. We're not boasting in our failures anymore, which means we don't live and keep regurgitating, keep cycling through our past sins and our mistakes. Why would we do that? That's not my basis for approaching God anymore. Christ paid for that. He's buried that sin in the deepest of sea. It's as far from the east as from the west in the mind of God. Which means we don't live in those sins. It means we don't go around groveling with a woe is me, I'm a second class citizen type of mentality. We don't do that. So if you're here today doing that, thinking about sins you did 15 years ago or five minutes ago and repented of, let them go. I'm not going to sing Frozen, but you get the idea, right? Like, let it go. It's done. It's paid for. And why? Because your value isn't based upon your successes anymore, which means inadvertently it's also no longer based upon your failures either. Do you see how this works? If my worth is not in what I own... If it is based in Christ, if it is based in his righteousness, 100% imputed to my unrighteousness, which comes freely by grace through faith in Christ, then both my successes and my failures are nothing that I will talk of or speak of or boast of or what, or that's what I'm looking for, uh, feel down about in. I can't think of an adjective. Well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Yes, I'll hate my sin. Yes, I'll fight my sin. We're not going to be callous and be like, oh, no big deal. I don't care if I sin. You know, Christ paid for it. We're not going to do that. No, we will fight our sin. We'll hate our sin. But we will do so not because we think our acceptance or rejection is at all based upon that, because it's not. It's based upon Christ's righteousness, which comes to us both freely and fully and results in both freeing us and humbling us. Speaking of that humbling... This brings us to our second reversed recycled point here. Uh, the hum- humility is absolutely a mark of somebody who's accepted God's infinite plan of salvation, his infinitely wise plan of salvation. Well, why do I say that? Well, I've kind of already told you that, but I'll just put it this way. Because your worth is not in what you own, but in Christ, there's n- and that means there's nothing you can do to gain God's approval or disapproval anymore, 
You can't lose it anymore. You've got it. You got it freely and fully by grace. That means you can't have it taken away by works. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. It's all by grace, period, full stop. Once you recognize that, that, of course, will lead to humility in your life. And here's the thing. Maybe some of you think that you are accepted by God because of your faith plus your works. Well, you're going to be probably pretty prideful or very defeated. Now, maybe you don't think that, but maybe some of you are here and you're thinking, oh, well, I, I keep my salvation by my works. You're going to have the same result. You're either going to become puffed up and prideful because, hey, I'm doing this and those boneheads aren't, or you're going to be super defeated by your sin and be like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. Did I lose it? Did I lose it? You're going to start looking back at yourself. Either way, you will not walk in the humility of Christ as you should. But if you do walk in the humility of Christ in your life, what will that look like? It's going to look like a lot of things. For example, when someone lovingly rebukes you for your sin, you don't circle the wagons and get ready for a shootout. You don't do that anymore. You're like, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. Okay, tell me. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to pray about that and work to change that and repent, right? You don't respond in a defensive manner anymore because you already know you're a sinner who's accepted by sheer grace. Also, another way that this is going to show itself is when you see other dim-witted Christians out there who can't seem to figure it out, who keep stumbling over and over and over, you're not going to sit there and wonder with disgust why they can't be more like you. I mean Jesus, but of course you mean you. You're not going to do that anymore. Instead, you're going to come along humbly beside them and you're going to lovingly serve them, looking for ways to humble yourself before them just as Christ humbled himself before you. This brings us to our last reverse recycled outline point. Do you give up power? Do you give up your power for the sake of others? Or are you constantly striving, trying to cling on to power at all costs? Do you always have to prove that you're right? Do you have to prove that you're better? Do you always insist that you know more and your way is the right way? And if people don't agree, you have a mini panic attack about it. Do you ever do this? Do you put your preferences second to others? Or do you insist upon your preferences above others? Do you serve others as Christ did who washed the disciples' feet? And do you do so even when you don't feel like it? Because the reality is we're still not going to feel like doing this stuff all the time, are we? But we do so anyways because Christ's power is at work within us. Because both living in Christ's power and giving up power for the sake of serving others is a hallmark of true salvation, we must live this way. And when we look at Christ's life, it makes sense that we would, doesn't it? For in Christ, what do we find? We find the ultimate power of the universe, setting aside his position of power to serve and to save sinners. We see this how? By his willingness to lay down his life upon a cross to die the death that you and I deserved after living the perfect life that you and I should have lived, but didn't. And because Christ did that, and only because Christ did that, can we live in his power, only then can we live in his humility, and because of that, only can we live in accordance with the wisdom of God. That's it. That's the only reason. So here's the question. How about you? Are you? Are you living in your power, by your works, and by your wisdom? If so, well, stop it. Turn in faith to King Jesus and say, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Father, I thank you for this text. Lord, I just pray for the one here who is struggling with pride, thinking that their works are anything but filthy rags. I pray that you would lead them to the humility of Christ that they would live in his humility, by his power, according to your sovereign and wise plan. Father, I pray for the one here today who is struggling, who is living in their defeat. 
I pray, Lord, that they would cling to Christ, that they would stop looking at their filthy rags, which they surely are, having many of. I pray they would stop looking to those and feeling defeated by it and remember their righteousness was never about that anyways. And so, Father, we pray that we would all walk according to your power, in your power, in humility, and by your wisdom as we go forth and proclaim the gospel. Father, we just pray for this next Sunday, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. We pray for those that you'll be bringing to us who may have never heard the gospel, or maybe they have and they've chosen to not accept. We just pray that your spirit would be working in their hearts, that it would be working through the foolishness of preaching. We pray that we would come prepared, ready to worship you and to show Christ's likeness as we just looked at today by living powerfully, humbly, and according to the wisdom of God before them. And help us also to point people towards that. Yes, imperfectly, but help us to do so by your power and for your great glory. Help us now as a church, Father. Just help us to be strong. Keep the evil one from us. Keep us united. Help us to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And we ask, Lord, that you would help continue to bring those to us who would make us strong and keep those from us who would do us harm. Father, we have so many changes that have happened in this church in these last two years, and we just pray that you would continue to protect us, to keep us safe, and to continue to bless us. But Father, we know that that blessing comes with faithfulness as a church, not in terms of individual Christians and salvation, but as a church. We know that you will not bless churches who are unfaithful. And why would you? Why would a sovereign God send unbelievers to a church who will not faithfully show Christ-likeness and proclaim the gospel. So we ask that we would hold fast to the truth, that we would not compromise on the areas we must not compromise on, and that we would not live as hypocrites before a world that is ever watching. Help us to do so by your power, in humility, and by your wisdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Stand with us as we close.